So I just wanted to start off with just a, a quick sort of introduction, I guess, um, because I know that there is just a natural thing that is happening right now. Um, there, is a, there is a sort of a barrier, right, a natural barrier between the congregation um, and myself, because you guys, as members of First Baptist Church, like you have put your trust for your spiritual guidance into the elders and the leaders of this church, right? I mean, that's part of what it means to be a member. Like, that's a choice that you have made to come here and to trust in those men. And so I recognize that I'm standing in your church and in your pulpit and asking you to listen to me preach the Bible, right? A man who most of you, I think, I'm a stranger to a lot of you, right? You, you don't know who I am. And so there's this weird thing happening, right? And so the, the only thing that I would ask um, is just that, the Lord gives authority to the pulpit. And I just want you to know that I do not take that lightly at all. Um, I, I understand the seriousness of what it means to stand up here, open up the Bible, and ask people to listen to the encouragement, to listen to the challenge, to listen um, to, to what the Lord has laid on my heart. It's easy to do when the, when the person standing here is somebody who you've known for years and you trust, right? And so th that's all I'm asking is that, um, th that you would know that I love the Lord, I love his word, I stand firmly on it, um, and so I think the Lord has given me some good things this morning. Um, and this is going to be a, a long-term relationship. I, I think it's probably well-known. I don't really know what all the – but, like, um, that, that I'm going to get to fill in for Colby kind of for the whole time he's gone. So for several months, um, I'm going to be here week after week sharing with, out of the book of Ecclesiastes with you. Um, and so I just want you to know that um, not, not only do I love God and I love his Bible, but I love this community. Maybe you, you may not know this, but I pastored a church in Bayfield for six years. Like, I love this town. This is my town as well as yours, and I love it, and I have a heart and a desire to see revival happen here and so I'm not just like, oh, Colby didn't just grab some dude off of the street and say, ah, can you do it? Okay, great. Here you go. Like, um, I, I do have a heart for Bayfield, and I have a heart for God's word. And so I just want you to know that because um, I don't want you to think, like, who is this random dude? What's he doing up here? Um, and so with that being said, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Now, I know you guys did a big chunk of it, and then, like, the the month of November, I think you did um, some sermons, and Colby preached a little bit about, like, Missions Month, and so just to give us sort of a recap or a refresh of kind of what happened or what has happened up to this point, um, I think it'll be helpful so that when we go into chapter 5, we kind of understand where, it, I don't know if Colby has been calling him the preacher or Solomon. I'm 100% comfortable calling this Solomon's book, right? Like, I am... I am convinced that he wrote this, so hopefully that doesn't make you upset. I'm going to call the, the author Solomon. Even though he calls himself the preacher, I 100%. This, this is Solomon writing this book, right? And so Solomon has told us and taught us a lot of things coming up to chapter 5. And in chapter 1, he hits us right in the square in the mouth with a truth that none of us want to hear and that none of us want to think about, and that is that each one of us is going to die. And there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen, and it's going to happen, right? And Solomon tells us that from the very beginning, your life is but a breath. Your life is vanity. Our lives are as, as temporary as taking a breath in and out. And we have to remember this, right? This is sort of the core of what Solomon is trying to teach us. It's at the core of it. 
if we forget this, if we say, I, I don't really want to think about that, I'm going to choose to not think about that. I'm going to choose to ignore the reality that one day I'm going to die and my spouse is going to die and everybody in my family is going to die. And in 100 years, nobody is going to know my name. But that is the reality of our situation. And instead of saying, that's depressing, I don't want to think about that, I'm going to put that in the back of my brain, that's what's true. We can't ignore what is true, and in fact, that truth will help, help to shape us and to help us to live our lives in a more godly way. Solomon is not doing this to bum you out or to make you feel bad. He's trying to get each one of us to embrace God more deeply, to, to serve God in a more better way that is closer to what God would want us to do. So I say if that sounds depressing to you, you need the truth of Ecclesiastes, right? More than that you might think that you do. Because if you hear this, this idea and say, I don't want to think about it, you're denying what is true. You're denying reality. And Solomon is trying to make us face that so that we can live a life that is more pleasing to God. The preacher tells us that there's nothing new under the sun, right? This is what Solomon says. Nothing you do, nothing you learn is new. Somebody's already done it. That thought that you thought, and you thought it was great, and it, you thought, man, nobody's ever thought about this. I better type it up and share it to who, wherever. It's been thought many, many, many times before you or before I ever thought it. No matter how smart we might think we feel in those moments, it's not new. Someone else has already discovered that. And so then he goes in chapter 2 and tells us, there's not even an experience. There's nothing that you can do. There's no accomplishment that you can make that has not been done. Because what does Solomon do? He lays it out there for us. You think you've done it? I've done it ten times better. Oh, you planted five fruit trees in your backyard? He planted forests of fruit trees, right? Not just an orchard of them, but forests of fruit trees. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. And he said it's not fulfilling. It's vanity. It's but a breath. You got a couple horses on your ten acres? He had thirty to 40,000 stables. I don't know how many horses are in each one, right? He, hundreds of thousands of horses, right? Not fulfilled. He did everything. Everything this world has to offer, Solomon did it, tried it, accomplished it, and he walked away, and at the end of the day, he says, it's but a breath. So I'm asking you this morning, Fill in the blank of this statement. If I only had blank, then I would be happy. And I'm telling you, if the answer to that question is anything other than God, it will not fulfill you. It will not make you happy. And that's what Solomon is trying to tell us, right? Through these first couple of chapters, he's telling us over and over and over again, your life is but a breath. Nothing you do and nothing you accomplish is going to bring fulfillment to you. And then in chapter 4, he says, well, what if you just do whatever you want all the time? And he says, look, this oppresses people, right? So not only does it not bring fulfillment to those whom you oppress by just being selfish, but it doesn't bring fulfillment to the oppressor. 
And so even just being selfish and saying, okay, fine, I won't try and accomplish anything. I'm just going to do whatever I want all the time. I mean, we know that this is no good, right? We've experienced that. We've been through seasons of life like this, and we know that it doesn't work. And we know that none of these things work. And so then we have to ask ourselves, then what in the world is the point? Why am I alive? Why do I live? Solomon, this is not really fun reading that we're doing here. What is it that you're trying to show me? What is it that you're trying to tell me? And Solomon slowly but surely pulls the veil back. Little hint here, little hint here. Chapter 2, verse 24 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And this also I saw is from the hand of God. And then in chapter 3, he says, So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now you might think, like, how is this any better than the sort of nihilistic code, right? Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They say that because they say that's all there is, right? what, What else... What else can there be? I can't find anything better than that, so that's what I'm going to do. It's not happy about it. If there was something better than that, they would try and, and pursue it and do it. But that attitude is, this is it. This is all there is. I don't know what else to do, so I guess I'm just going to do this. The message of Ecclesiastes is not, this, that, is not that this is all there is. Solomon is telling us this is what there is. God is telling us, this is what I created you for. The fact that we have so much ambition and we want to gain and we want to get this new thing and this new deal and gain more money and gain more power and gain more respect, that's a human invention into our society. God did not create us to live the way that we live. He created us to live the way that Solomon is telling us. Find joy in your toil. Go home and eat and drink and enjoy your family and enjoy your home because that's what there is. This is what God has created us for. Now in chapter 4, Solomon also reveals to us, right, that living in community brings about great joy and purpose. The man who stands by himself can't pick himself up, right? But where there are two, the other one can help the other one up. (coughs) So Solomon is not trying to tell us that life is a pit of despair and you're better off dead. But he's saying, if all you're doing is seeking money and riches and power and fame and respect, well, then you are better off dead, right? Because none of that will ever fulfill you. That's not what we should be seeking after. And what's really interesting is that we all know it, and yet we all lie to ourselves from time to time, don't we? We tell ourselves, yeah, but, 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 this is the exception. If I could just, like, get, get a couple acres and, like, and do this, man, then I know I know if I can get, like, sort of out of the suburbs in my own land and do this thing, like, that's going to finally, like, that's going to be the thing. That's going to fulfill me, and I'll never want for anything ever again. And you lie to yourself, right? And you tell yourself that, and you allow yourself to believe that, and when you get it, you realize, uh, nah, dang it. I knew better, and I still believed the lie, because it doesn't work. Nothing on this earth is going to fulfill us. And so Solomon is telling us, look, He's not saying, look, go quit your job and burn your house down and go live in a tent out in the middle of nowhere and just do whatever you want because all of this stuff is worthless. He says, go to work and find joy in your toil. Find joy in the work that God has given you to do. Don't find joy only in the results of your work. 
And are you going to get a promotion or are you going to get a bigger paycheck? But find joy in the toil itself. And at the end of a hard day of work, you go home, have a good meal, play with your kids, enjoy your family, and go to bed and wake up and do it again, right? And find joy the next day in your toil. And that's what Solomon is telling us to do. Now, what I'm not saying and what I don't think that the book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes is saying is that you can't ever buy anything new. You can't ever buy a nice new car. You can't ever upgrade and buy a bigger house. The point is, when you do those things, do them with the right attitude. Because most Americans buy those things thinking that that's going to fulfill them. We as Christians can go and buy a new car if we need a new car, or a bigger house if we're too cramped in the house we live in. What? But you do it with the understanding, this is not going to make me happy, and this is not going to make my life more fulfilled. I'm just doing this because I feel like I need to do this, right? My car is 20 years old, and it costs more to fix it these days than it does, right, than, than it's actually worth. And so I'm going to go buy a new car, not because I think that's going to make me feel better, but because that's what I need, right? And so we do, and what, I, what I'm saying is I don't think Solomon is necessarily telling us to do a lot of different things. I think he's saying do the same stuff you're doing now, but with a different mindset, with a different attitude as to why you're doing it. Why are you going to work? Why are you working so hard? Why are you buying this thing? That's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Why am I doing the things that I am doing? And so then we get to chapter 5, and Solomon is saying, look, all of that stuff that is not fulfilling you, right? Find your fulfillment in God. And so then he shifts, and he's now going to tell us how is it that we approach the God who brings fulfillment to us. So let's read these couple of verses here, 1 through 7 together. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. To draw near to listen is better than to offer a sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying for it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So pay what you owe. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. Anyone seen an introduction to um, like church, TV church recently? It's probably better if you haven't. Um, but <laughs> sort of cameras flying around the room, right? Everything is immaculate. There's smoke and lights and all the stuff in this huge room. And it's like thousands of people. Right, and it sort of zooms in on this guy who's like a spray tan face with bleached white smile, and he's welcoming you. This is come as you are. It doesn't matter who you are, what you think. Just come and join and be a part, and on and on and on and on and on. And Ecclesiastes takes a very different approach. This is more like 
a fun house at a carnival with sort of the old guy saying, come in if you care. This is what we have, right? Solomon, in the end of his life, is sitting before the church and saying, look, this is where you will find fulfillment. You better be very careful about how you walk into this room. Because if you're not, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. I've never been a guy to like want to only preach one verse. And I don't think I'm really smart enough to do that. Like I don't think I can ever really pull out enough out of one verse to preach an entire sermon. But the temptation was there to preach a half a verse. I'll tell you that. Guard your steps when you enter the house of God. The, the, the uh, applications to that are fairly endless, right? Don't come to God's church in a spirit of anger. Don't come to God's church expecting to only be served. Don't come to God's church expecting to be the center of attention. Don't come and give an offering with an angry heart. Right? You could, we could go on and on and on about all of the things at which we should guard ourselves when we come to God's house. Solomon gives us just one of the many, many things. And he says, you need to listen more and talk less. If you boil these seven verses down, that's exactly what he is saying. We should be quiet and we should listen to what God has to say before we open our mouth to speak. Now, this is not unique to Ecclesiastes, right? Several verses in Proverbs 10, 19, Solomon tells us when words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. Chapter 17, 27 and 28, <coughs> a man of knowledge restrains his words and a man of understanding maintains a calm spirit. For even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. This is not the first time that Solomon has tried to communicate this idea, right? And this is not unique to Solomon, right? Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6 with me for a moment. This is going to be a very familiar passage, but it's one that I suspect maybe we haven't thought about all the ins and outs of and how it all plays out. Chapter 6, starting in verse 4. What's the first word? Hear. God is calling Israel. Listen, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God tells Israel, listen up. Later in Deuteronomy it's even more explicit. Explicit. Moses says, be silent and listen to the commands of God. That's how he starts it, right? Deuteronomy is this great, long speech that Moses gives before they go, well, before they think they're going to go into the promised land, right? And he gives them this big, long speech. And over and over and over again, he says to Israel, be silent and hear what God has to say to you. And that's what Solomon is telling us. When we go to the house of God, we should be quiet first. We should listen first. Did you notice how many different ways God commands Israel in that passage to listen? Parents, tell your children over and over again. Talk about 
these statutes, when you sit at home, when you walk around, when you lie down, when you rise, find them on your hand and on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and your gate. We are so forgetful, we forget from the gate to the front door what God told us to do, right? How close is that for most of us? 15 seconds, right? That's how long it takes most of the time for when we hear a good word from the Lord that we have forgotten it already and be like, oh yeah, I need to be reminded. Oh yeah, I need to be reminded. Every day, all day long, we need to be reminded. We need to be listening to God. Solomon says, listening is better than offering the sacrifice of fools. It's an interesting statement. It's an interesting dichotomy here. Because it doesn't say never offer your sacrifices to God. But rather listen first. Why? So that you can even know what you're supposed to be sacrificing in the first place. For the hearers, Solomon's built the temple, right? Can you imagine the embarrassment? You show up at the temple with a bundle of weed on your arm and everybody else is leading goats and rams. And you're like, wait, what day is it? What was I supposed to be bringing? I forget. Like, you don't listen to what God is telling you, the sacrifice you're supposed to bring, and you come with the wrong thing. Do you think that God is pleased with that? Solomon is calling us fools when we do this. If we put it into our context, how many people are going to God with the sacrifice of their own good deeds? How many people are standing before the Lord saying, well, yeah, I may have not called out on the name of Jesus, but my faith was sincere. I thought I was believing the right thing. I tried my best. It would be better to not bring anything at all. Because the Bible calls our good deeds, our attempts to bring our own goodness before the Lord and lay that there as a sacrifice for our salvation. What does it call it? Rubbish, right? Garbage. That is not what you want to be laying before the Lord, right? I, I would never want to lay garbage at his feet and be like, here you go. This is what I brought for you. That's what my cat does, right? Find some weird animal out in the field and brings it to me, thinking that I'm going to love it, right? That's how smart we look when we do this. When we bring our own goodness before the Lord and try and pass it off as something worthy for him to take in. It's just, it's worthless and it's rubbish, how does this happen? Why does it happen? Because people are bringing their sacrifice to God before they listen. How many hundreds of times does it tell us in this Bible, you aren't worthy, your deeds are not worthy, nothing you do is worthy to set before the feet of God. None of us, none of us have ever done anything to bring on our own steam for God to look at us and be like, oh, wow, way to go. And yet people do it all the time because they don't listen first. Because the Bible also says hundreds of times, if you want to step before the Father, you better put your faith in Jesus first. You're not worthy, but there is one who is worthy. There is one who is perfect, who is spotless, who is blameless, and he is willing to imbue that onto you. He's willing to give you his righteousness and his holiness, not because of anything that you've done 
or anything that I have done, but because he loves us and he is willing to stand in our place and be the sacrifice that we don't have. We don't have anything to offer to God. And Jesus says, I'll offer myself to the Father for you so that you can be saved. When you hear that message, then you can go before the Lord and bring the proper sacrifice. You don't go and for some foolish reason say, oh, maybe, maybe that good thing I did for my neighbor the other day, God's going to be really happy about that one. He's not. It's not to say that we shouldn't be trying to help other people, right? And that we're not striving for sanctification and for good works. But those are all for God's glory, not for our own. We don't bring them and say, God, how pleased are you with the good thing that I did? We say, God, thank you for giving me the ability to do this good deed that I would have never done in my own flesh. It's a full dependence upon God. It's not 99% Jesus and 1% you. It's 100% Jesus and 0% you. That's how it works. And that's the sacrifice we bring. We just go and we say, Jesus, please stand in between me and the wrath that I deserve from the Father. And he does it. When we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Jesus, this is what he does for us. At one time, we were all there, though, right? We were all presenting this foolish sacrifice of our own good deeds and God still loves us right and God replaced that foolishness with wisdom he replaced the faith that we have in ourselves and in our own good works with faith in Christ because that's the only thing that saves now we ask why why is Solomon telling us this why should we be humbling ourselves so much and he answers that question God is in heaven sitting on his throne of the universe he sees everything not just everything that's happening right now, but everything outside of time in all of human history. He sees all of it. He understands it perfectly. And you and I have a hard time understanding what's going on in our own heads half the time. We have such limited understanding, limited sight about what is happening around us. And yet sometimes we have the audacity to say, God, why would you do that? I don't like that, and I think you should do something different. In fact, I think you should do it the way that I want it to be done. I work as the chaplain at the hospital, so you can imagine, I see this quite a lot. I interact with patients um, who maybe haven't even thought about God for 10 or 15 years, but they're stuck in the hospital, and they're very sick, and all of a sudden, they see the crucifix on the wall, or maybe they see the Bible on the table, and they're like, oh, yeah. That guy is around, right? I wonder what he's up to, and I wonder why is it that he's doing this to me, and why would he treat me like this, and why me? And they just, they think that they understand how the world works, and they question God in a way that nobody should ever be bold enough to do. We accuse God of not knowing what he's doing. We accuse God, and then we say, God, you should do it the way I want it to be done, as if we understand anything. Can I give you another example of this? Because I see this one. Mm, I see it all the time. Um, so, oh, thank you very much. <coughs> and it's the, in, within the doctrine of salvation. Now, I know a lot of people 
um, friends of mine from college and, you know, ministers that I've served with over the years who they reject Calvinism and they reject it and they, they hold to the Bible and they say, look, these are the reasons that I reject it. And they give me scripture verses. And that's not the person I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who I also know who reject Calvinism. And they say, I won't believe in God's election for salvation because that seems mean. And I don't like it. And I think it should be done a different way. And so I don't believe that. They read Romans 9, and they don't actually tell me why Romans 9 is not preaching election. They say, ugh, I wish God was doing something different, so I'm going to just choose to believe that God is doing something different than what I just read. And that is unbelievably arrogant. The Wesley brothers, have you, ever, you may have heard this story a um, long time ago, right? These guys who sort of founded the Methodist um, denomination one of them Calvinist one not and they're writing each other and they're trying to convince each other all the time and I can't remember which one is John or Charles I don't remember which was which but finally the brother whichever brother was rejecting Calvinism he finally said to his brother he said I won't believe it even if you can prove it to me in scripture ladies and gentlemen that is a place that you never ever ever want to be right this is God's revealed word. If I can prove it to you from scripture, we should believe it, right? We should believe everything that it says, no matter whether we understand it, no matter whether we like it, it doesn't matter. It's kind of like being a child, right? I tell my kids, look, you obey what I tell you to do, whether you like it or understand it. You can ask me questions as long as you're in the act of obedience. Go pick up this thing and put it away. Okay, they pick it up and as they're doing it, why do I need to do this? I'm happy to explain it to them. If they ask me why before the obedience starts, not okay, right? And that's, we should view ourselves that way. God gives us a command, we obey, we are free to ask him, God, why is it that you set it up like this? Why is this what is true and not this other thing what is true? And you know what? God can choose to enlighten you or he can choose not to, right? And we still obey regardless of whether he answers us or not. But the first step is to believe. Because why? Because God is in heaven and we are here on earth. He sits on the throne of the universe. How little are we compared to that? <coughs> Solomon tells us, listen. Speak few words because that is your position, right? That is your status in the universe. We listen first. We speak second. And we only speak in reverence and in holy obedience to God, right? Because he doesn't say be silent. He just says be a person, a man or woman of few words. Solomon is not telling us to stop praying altogether, right? We simply measure our words carefully. We limit what we say. Why is that? Not because your words are meaningless. You can catch this. He's telling you to, to limit what you say to God because God is listening to you. When you make a vow, God heard it. And he expects you to, to fulfill your part of it. Prayer is not just something that we do before meals or when we wake up or before we go to bed or what we do at church. God is listening to you when you speak to him. That same God that brings us down and humbles us and we say, wow, you're the king of the universe and I am here and I have nothing compared to you. That same God is listening when you speak. That's why Solomon says, be careful what you say to him. 
you vow a vow to God, he heard it. He wants you. He expects you to fulfill it. Now here's the problem. We are a people of good intentions with no follow through. That's, that's where sin has corrupted us, right? We desire to do these good things. We're like Israel when Moses comes down the mountain with the law and he gives it to him. And Israel very, very foolishly says, Lord, everything you said we will do. You see, we read that and we don't get a response from God. But how do you think God responded to that? Oh, man, you have no idea what you just agreed to. I may step on a toe or, here, uh, or two here um, from some of you ladies. Uh, Hobby Lobby has made a killing off of this sign. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? That's a statement from Joshua. I, I bet that when he made that statement, the Lord looked down at him and said, you don't know what you just agreed to. See, that's, that's what we do. We have, we have this. I'm not telling you. If you have that sign, don't take it down. I'm not. Like, but that's our heart, right? Our heart is, God, everything you command, I'm going to do it. Our house, we're going to serve the Lord in everything that we do. And then we fail over and over and over again. We are just like Paul. Paul in Romans 7 says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not, for I do, not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so I close with this. Ladies and gentlemen, we need Jesus. We need Jesus even after we have been saved, even after we've been imbued with the Holy Spirit, because we have this desire to do good, and we want to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit this part of my life, and I'm going to stop sinning here. And then we step away from that, and we realize I can't do it. I can't do this on my own. I have to have the help of Jesus. If I'm going to kick this sinful habit, I can't do it. I've just promised to the Lord that I'm going to stop this. God, you have to help me fulfill my own promise to you, right? That's what we need. The only way to match your desire for obedience with actual obedience is to call upon the name of Jesus, to tap into the Holy Spirit that God has given you, that he will empower you to do things that you can't do on your own. So don't, don't say, well, I'll just never make another promise to God ever again. Make the promises and rely on God's power to make them happen and watch what God will do. He's not going to betray you. He's not going to turn his back on you. Oh, yeah, that guy, he wants to get out of sin. I'm too busy for that. I got this other stuff to do. We'll just let him try on his own and see what happens. God will not abandon you when you come to him and say, I want to be closer to you. I want to be more obedient to you. He's going to look at you and say, let's go, right? Here we go. Together we're going to do this, and God is going to stand alongside you, and he's going to strengthen you. He's going to give you the ability and the power and the will to stand firm when you could never ever do it on your own amen let's pray <coughs> father god what a great mighty and powerful god you are 
And what a warning that we have here, Lord. That we would not come before you with even one empty word. But that when we enter into your presence, when we bow down on our knees to pray, Lord, that everything that we say would be metered, that everything that we say would be well thought. Because we know that you are the God of the universe and yet you hear our prayers and you're listening to every word we speak to you. That's a privilege that we can't even comprehend, that we can't fathom. And so, Lord, I ask this morning that you would help us, that you would remind us to guard our words, to guard our tongues, that our words would be few when we stand before you. And that when we make these vows and when we make promises to you, Lord, that you would strengthen us to complete them. Because we can't do it. We're not strong enough to do it on our own, but you say that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that you are strong enough to carry out the righteousness, Lord, the sanctification of our souls. And so, Lord, we depend on you 100%. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.